Well, I do invite you to turn with me to this little flyer that's inside your bulletin. And you can open your Bibles as well, but we're going to be reading um, responsibly here in a moment. At certain times of the year, the people of God have specific celebrations, such as we've seen this morning, Palm Sunday, Easter coming up next Sunday, and then, of course, Christmas, and there are others as well. And at those times, we generally, generally return to familiar hymns, familiar scriptures, uh, special services to, to, uh, to worship the Lord during those occasions. Well, Psalm 118 is a psalm that was used on special occasions and rituals for the Israelites. Now, as we've been saying over the past few weeks, this, uh, this psalm and these psalms uh, that are grouped here from 113 through 118 are referred to as the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. Hallel means praise in Hebrew, so these are psalms of praise. They're called Egyptian Hallel Psalms because these psalms of praise refer to their use in the celebration of Passover. So families would generally sing 113 and 114 before the Passover meal and then 115 through 118 after the meal. Now Psalm 118 was also used, not just by families, but was also used in conjunction with the Passover worship at the temple and other festive processional celebrations. This is a processional psalm, a psalm of procession. It would have been sung or recited as people processed through the city to the temple to worship the Lord, led by a leader, and in this case, originally a Davidic king, if not King David. As they took their sacrifice to the temple, they would be singing and reciting Psalm 118. And that's what Psalm 118 is referring to. And this was used throughout the history of Israel. In Jeremiah 33, uh, Jeremiah ministered during a time where, where, is, uh, where Judah was being conquered and, and put into exile. And so one of his prophecies about the future says this. This is 33, Jeremiah 33:10. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, quote, give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's Psalm 118.1. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as it first, says the Lord. So this psalm was used throughout the history of Israel. And when, when uh, Jeremiah wants to paint a picture of their restoration, he gives one picture of them processing into Jerusalem, restored, and then once again singing Psalm 118, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. It's probably hard for them to believe at that, at that time. But they were looking forward to another festival where they could sing this, this psalm. So you see there, it is a processional psalm that was used in, um, in the worship uh, of the Lord. Now you'll notice as we read this that sometimes the pronouns are singular and sometimes they are plural. 
The leader or king is speaking as a representative of the people in the singular, and then the rest of the, of the group, the throng that's processing to the temple, joins in response. So this morning, I want to get a, all of us a feel for how this psalm may have been used by the people of God, so we're going to read it responsibly. And let's stand together as we do so. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Let Israel say His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say out of my distress, I, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They, were, they went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. So this psalm came to be used prominently in the liturgy of Israel, corporately and with individuals in their uh, family Passover celebrations. And I want to do two things this morning. And the first one is that I want to look at it in its original context, as uh, possibly David uh, wrote it. And then I want to apply it to Christ, of course, because this is a messianic psalm, as is testified by its frequent quotation in the New Testament. 
Well, there is no superscription that tells us that this is a psalm of David. Um, but as, as you look at the jubilant expressions of the psalmist, it would be difficult to picture it as originating from any other mouth than King David's. Um, he was uh, victorious in battle on numerous occasions and, of course, was a psalm writer and often expressed his love for the Lord and praise of the Lord in psalm. Now, this psalm is about deliverance received from God in military conflict. The king has led his people in battle, and the Lord has given them the victory. The king and the people are giving, uh, giving glory to God and are thanking him for his goodness and his faithful love to them. You see there in verses 1 through 4, he calls the congregation to worship the Lord, emphasizing his steadfast love. And that word steadfast love is uh, his covenant love, the, the love that he uh, has for the people to whom he is committed. God loves his people and the Davidic king by covenant. He made a covenant with Israel. He made a covenant with King David. And he's bound himself, and he's bound himself to love them. And we are to love him, or they are to love him in return. And that's why the Lord hears David's or the king's cry when he cries out to him and he answers him. He knows that the Lord is on his side as his helper, and his enemies will not prevail against him. And that's what he says there in those first few verses. In 8 and 9, the speaker, the king, refuses to trust in men or princes. It's probably a reference to foreign leaders and the likely opportunity that he would have had to reach out for help from some other nation. Uh, perhaps he could make an international alliance and therefore defeat his enemies. But as you read throughout the history of Israel, when Israel did this sort of thing, they were always condemned by God because God says, I'm sufficient for you. You don't need to call on Egypt or Assyria or any of these other nations to come help you. you. You've got me fighting for you. But time and again, they rejected the Lord and made alliances with other countries instead of trusting him. So the psalmist here, uh, the king is saying, I'm not going to trust in any princes. Uh, all we need is the Lord. He's affirming the right, uh, right attitude towards the situation. Now, verses 10 through 18 speak of the dangerous opposition that the king faced. The nations surrounding Israel were dangerous, and this vivid imagery of bees and fire among thorns consuming quickly, uh, describing their enemies. But then the victory was given by God. Now, after recounting the victory, they proceed to Jerusalem to the temple. Verse 19 Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. He, he wants them to get in there and worship in the temple. Now 22 and 23 sum up the reason for the joy of the king and his people. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. So the king, as representative of the people, this nation, uh, was not considered anything special 
they were the stone that the builders rejected. But now it has become the cornerstone, the most important part of the building. Uh, they were slaves in Egypt. So this was used in Passover. You can see why it was used in Passover. They were slaves in Egypt, and they're remembering how the Lord brought them out of Egypt, nobodies, without any, uh, without any power, no rights, just people in, under oppression. God saved them through the waters of the Red Sea, brought them through the wilderness, brought them to the promised land, and established them as a great nation. So yes, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. God has put his king uh, over the nation. And it was the Lord's doing. He's not taking credit for it himself. It was the Lord's doing. It was a miracle. And now on this day of deliverance, they're saying this is the day that God has given us. He's made it possible for us to come to this place. And it is wonderful. And let us rejoice on this day as we remember the great deliverance that the Lord has given to his people Israel. And then 25 says, save us, we pray, O Lord. Continue, continue to uh, save us. We continue to be dependent upon you. We're not letting the victory go to our heads. We're, we're in a posture of humility and trust in the Lord. Now verse 26 affirms that the king and his subjects who come to the, war, to the temple to worship in this way are indeed blessed. Blessed is he, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Perhaps this was even a third voice in the psalm. People within the temple, uh, the leaders of the temple saying, you know, we're saying, oh, they say, open the gates, let us come in. And they say, come on in. Uh, you're blessed for coming in, in here. And the Lord... Uh, you are, you are blessed and the, the, the Lord has made his light to shine upon you. And then verse 28 and 29 sum it up or, or end it up. There's kind of a, a covenant renewal, if you will, in verse 28, where the leader once again, his voice is heard, you are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will, I will extol you. And then it ends where it all began, back to, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. So originally, perhaps a Davidic psalm uh, celebrating a great military victory, celebrating the, the nation uh, being under God's protection and God's blessing. And so often sung in those uh, times when that was being remembered, all the victories of God through the ages for the people of God to get them from slavery in Egypt into the promised land, established as a nation with a Davidic king sitting on the throne. Well, that's the original context. Uh, what about us? What about the New Testament? Uh, what about Jesus? Because we know this psalm is all about Jesus because the New Testament quotes it in reference to Jesus. But I want to show not only the content pointing us to Jesus, but the entire form, uh, the entire Psalm and in the way it was used in the life of Israel is fulfilled by Jesus. I'll explain more about that in a moment. Christ was the fulfillment of the entirety of Israel's promises. You know, God called Abraham, 
out of idol worship, called him to leave his family's house, brought him into the promised land, promised that he would give him that land and descendants and that he would be a blessing to the nations. God made further covenants with, with Moses uh, and David and promised the new covenant. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises. After Jesus is born, everything about his life is a recapitulation of the history of Israel. You know, we, we often think about, and the kids said it in the 1 Corinthians 15 quotation, they refer to the fact that Jesus is the second Adam, the, the true Adam. Adam failed. He ate the forbidden fruit. He, he plunged the world into sin. Jesus came to rescue us from that. He was the Adam who was obedient in our place. And when we're united to Christ, we're saved. We understand that Jesus is greater than David. Uh, the, the great king that's coming into Jerusalem, of course, that's Jesus. He fulfills that. He's greater than Solomon. He's even greater than the temple, he says. All of these things point us to Jesus and are fulfilled in Jesus. But Jesus is also the true Israel. He is the true Israel. So after Jesus is born, what does he do? Not much. He was a baby. But what does his parents do? They fled to Egypt. They had to go to Egypt. And then they left Egypt. And Matthew tells us, quoting the Hosea prophecy, out of Egypt I called my son. In the original context, that was talking about Israel being called out of Egypt. But here, Matthew applies it to Jesus. He's the one being called out of Egypt. So he comes out of Egypt. And then what happens? He goes through the waters, the waters of the Jordan, the baptism. And then into the wilderness to be tempted. But unlike the first generation of Israelites who failed the test and ended up dying in the wilderness, Jesus overcomes. He does not succumb to any temptation. In fact, he uses to answer the devil scriptures strictly from the book of Deuteronomy that was given to the Israelites in the desert. If they had paid attention to Deuteronomy and to the law of God, they wouldn't have been in that situation where they were dying in the desert. Jesus is greater. Jesus fulfills that. He goes up on the mountain like Moses and then down from the mountain to feed the people with the bread of God just like Moses did with the manna. Paul says that the rock that Moses struck and, and, and hydrated the people of Israel, that rock was Christ. He fulfilled it. He's the one... Well, he, reca he recapitulates the kingdom period as well. He tells the religious leaders of Israel that he's the greater. He's greater than David, greater than Solomon, greater than the temple. Um, remember when... He's, he's, uh, the, the religious leaders criticize him and his disciples for eating the heads of grain uh, on the Sabbath day. What does he explain? How does he explain that? He says, do you remember what David did with the showbread in the temple? So what he did was similar to what David did. You can go throughout uh, 
the Gospels and see the typology of David throughout there, and, and Solomon as well, Solomon's coronation, he rode in on a donkey, unwittingly. And Jesus is doing the same. He's greater than Solomon who built the temple. He's the greatest of the prophets. He recapitulates the prophetic era when he, when he uh, pronounces woes on the Pharisees. He promised the destruction of the temple, echoing Ezekiel's vision of the glory of God departing from the temple, moving out till it stood at the Mount of Olives. And what did Jesus do after he said these things? Jesus left the temple and he went to the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. He is the glory of God departing from the temple. Finally, he went into exile on the cross and in the grave. But he brought about the restoration through his resurrection, which was promised by the prophets. So he is the true Israel. Paul exclaims in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. Every one of them. And that's what's true about this psalm. Not only is Jesus talked about in this psalm, we have the basic, uh, the two sections that are quotations, are quoted, quoted, sorry, quoted in the New Testament. Most prominently, verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all quote the people singing Psalm 118 as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And that applies to Jesus. In fact, they identify in Luke's gospel, it says, uh, Blessed is the king, the king of David, the son of David. And Jesus doesn't correct them. The Pharisees and the leaders want him to correct it, but he says if, if these people don't say it, then the very rocks will cry out. So Jesus is fulfilling that content. As we saw before, David is leading his people into the temple to rejoice in a great victory. And here's Jesus coming, blessed in the name of the Lord, to rescue his people. And then the stone that the builders rejected, verse 22, has become the cornerstone. Of course, this is quoted extensively in the New Testament as well. We read one in our uh, assurance of pardon from 1 Peter, Acts 4. Uh, Peter, in his sermon, says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. In Ephesians 2, So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the content, yes, points us to Jesus for sure. Absolutely. And that's what we're celebrating today, that the Davidic king, our, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who fulfills that, has come to us. And he was rejected by men, but now he's the cornerstone. And God is doing something marvelous in our lives and in our days and in the life of this world. But the form of it as well, the fact that Jesus is doing what Psalm 118 talks about and, and, and how it was used in the life of Israel. Jesus himself, nobody else, there's of course crowds around him, but Jesus is processing into Jerusalem. Jesus, the king, is coming into Jerusalem and these things are being sung to him. Jesus is riding on that donkey and he is being identified as the king, rightfully so, 
But what these people don't understand is that he's also the sacrifice. They understood correctly, yes, this is the son of David, this is the Messiah, this is the Christ, the anointed one. They had that part right. But what went wrong was that they were expecting a military victory a la David style. Let's get rid of the Romans. And that's why they turned on him so quickly. But it was all part of God's plan. Yes, David was coming with the sacrifice that he was going to bind and bring to the horns of the altar. But Jesus comes as the sacrifice. He is the king who sacrifices himself. So we can say, uh, as, this, as this psalm says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the Lord's doing. He did it all. He's fulfilled every promise. And it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day. This is the day of salvation that Jesus has secured. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. Let's make this our prayer. Save us, we pray. O Lord, grant us success. See, the Lord is God, and He has made His light to shine upon us because the festal sacrifice has been given, and we can be His people. This whole psalm is about the covenant relationship that God has with His people and with His anointed one. God made promises to, to his son. He gave him a mission to accomplish. And he promised him uh, the rewards of his work. The people whom he saved. And God is faithful to that promise. And God is faithful to his covenant that he makes with his people. Anyone who calls on Jesus and puts his faith in him is united to the true Israel. So we are the people of God. By faith, we are united. We are part of, we've been grafted in to the people of God, to Israel. We are, by faith, children of Abraham. Not ethnically so, but by faith. And all the blessings that come through all those promises that were fulfilled with Christ are ours. The key is turning from our own way, turning from our own works, turning from our own wisdom to trust in the Lord, to put our faith in what Jesus has done. And everything from beginning to end of all his promises will be ours as well. And we can say, yes, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous, marvelous in our eyes. And we should give thanks to the Lord for he is good. This is the good news. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened in the in the history of the universe. And it's all part of God's plan. He is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. Do you know that today? You know, we sang in my song is Love Unknown, this is my friend in whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. Is that your heart today? Is, are you rejoicing with Psalm 118? about how Jesus willingly rode into Jerusalem. I love how Luke says it. He set his face to Jerusalem. He had a mission to accomplish, and he did it for us. And we should give thanks. Because of his love for his people, he did that. 
Do you know that love today? Do you, do you, are you excited about worshiping the Lord and praising Him and serving Him? If not, you need to call on the Lord because you're either in Adam or you're in Christ, and all who are, who are in Adam are condemned. But it's only those who are, who are in Christ who can be saved and who will experience the resurrection that we'll be celebrating next Sunday. So I, I exhort you to call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Are you dry today? Are you weary? Have you fallen into mediocrity? Well, I hope this fuels your fire as we celebrate Holy Week this coming week. As you th- contemplate all that Jesus has done and, and all the blessings that come from the Lord to us by faith. And if you're sitting on top of the world, then hey, rejoice even more. It's still the greatest news of all time. It is the Lord's doing. Marvelous, marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, for this joyous psalm that leads us in worship in our hearts. Uh, We do give thanks to you. And Lord, we pray that we would always remember that you are a God who whose loving kindness endures forever. Lord, we look at our lives, our sinfulness, our brokenness, and we think, oh, how can the Lord continue to love me? But your steadfast love endures forever. Even when we are faithless, you are faithful because you cannot deny yourself. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for binding yourself to your people. And may we, like David or whoever wrote this psalm, May we also say, you are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.